0: Let's talk about anti-selection or adverse selection. The practice of only choosing to buy insurance when you think you wanna make a claim. My name is Yafa Sakeja, I'm the CEO of Beneplan. Anti-selection or sometimes called adverse selection is someone making the selection literally to only buy benefits or really insurance practically when they need it what happens when everybody does this insurance turns into a pyramid scheme and that is not cool at all the whole system crumbles if everybody chose to pay nothing and then make a claim for a hundred thousand dollars at the same time that's a recipe for absolute disaster so i want to talk about why insurers have rules to prevent this and then how it works in the group benefits landscape so you know, if you think about individual life insurance or buying individual health insurance, um, you notice that you're going to have to do a medical test. So a medical test involves a nurse coming to your house, sticking a needle in your arm, taking your blood, making you step on a scale, measuring your waist, measuring your height, asking you a series of questions, a lot of uncomfortable questions too, like check this box if you've had herpes. And, you know, guess what? If you lie or you don't tell the truth, or they find that Um, maybe you weren't lying, but you oversaw something or, you know, you forgot about it and they go back to your doctor and get your chart and they see it there. That's not going to be good for you. A lot of people say, well, what's the point? I mean, if I'm only buying insurance, if I'm not going to use it, then what's the point of you buying it? Well, I mean, the key is that if you look at the origins of insurance, like how did we get here? Well, you know, really insurance didn't start with the word insurance. It started with communities. It started with churches starting with people and communities coming together when a barn burned down or a farm, you know, suffered a a massive catastrophe. And so on Sundays at church, the community would pass the hat around and put money in the pot. And you know, that still actually happens today. In Ontario, we've got a, a Mennonite community in Perth, Wellington County, And they're still able to opt out of OHIP. They actually opt out of the Ontario Health Insurance Plan, the provincial government um, healthcare system. And the reason is because, well, you know, first of all, it's kind of against their philosophy because, first of all, the only insurance you really need are God and your community. And so if you don't depend on each other, if you don't rely on each other, and that, you know, by virtue of the fact that becomes insurance, what community do you have? So really the origins of insurance was you're part of a community. You're helping out your friends when they need help. And then you are asking for help in return. It doesn't work. If you're not part of the community, you show up and you say, Hey, you know, I'm from Toronto. My house burned down. Can you guys please pay me? Like, So, you know, I know that sounds awkward, but, you know, insurance evolved from that to the modern day system that we have now. And so that's why we still have rules in place because insurance is now larger and faceless. And so those rules are even more important to prevent people from gaming the system. Yes, I said gaming the system. I know a lot of people think that insurance companies are these big evil entities out to totally take advantage of the small customer in the street. While that's a common perception out there, I can absolutely assure you that inside that ivory tower, within those marble walls, those insurance, you know, professionals actually feel the opposite. They feel that way about the public. They—it's almost like a bee. You know, when you were a kid and you you were scared of a bee, and your parents said, "Hey, don't be scared of it. It's more scared of you than you are of it." It <laughs> kind of flips it on its head. Insurance companies are like bees. They are more scared of the public than the public are scared of them because they recognize the, the mentality and they recognize that people are looking to cash in policies. And you know they're worried that they can't protect the rest of the nation that purchase policies if they're allowing behavior like anti-selection or adverse selection, only paying into the system when you need it. So looking at group benefits, there's a few rules that you'll see. And, you know, it might not be black and white in the contract as to why those rules exist, but I want to explain why those rules exist. Because once you, you know, you're going to face these rules all the time, if you're a customer or a broker, and you might get very frustrated with like, why are these rules here? They're making my, you know, HR manager extremely frustrated. They're making my employee extremely frustrated. We hate them. They're awful. Like, let's find another insurance company that's going to do it differently. Well, guess what? You need to understand the fundamental reasons behind it, because if you do and you set up your own system for success, then you will be far better off financially and legally over time. So one of the big rules in group benefits is that you have to enroll an employee into a benefit plan on time. When I say on time, it depends on the contract, but by and large in Canada, in Ontario, it's typically... 31 days from the effective date of the employee. Usually the effective date is the hire date plus the waiting period. The waiting period is typically matched with the probation period, typically 90 days or three months, but it is employer's choice. Employers can choose to move that waiting period. They can make it six months, a year, three years. They can do whatever they want. Really, it's your money. Um, I think a lot of people think insurance companies set those rules and they might if they're on the hook for the risk, but Um, employers absolutely have agency in that decision. So let's say the effective date of when an employee is eligible to join benefits is 90 days after their hire date. Well, the insurance company has a rule saying, well, you've got to let us know that that person exists within 31 days of their hire date. So four months from the date of hire, if you've got a three month waiting period. And if not, guess what? That employee has to go through medical draw blood, step on the scale, pee in the cup, the whole awkward bit. And why is that? The reason is because, you know, if you're enrolling an employee on time within the probation period or the grace period, um, there's no medical required. And why is there med- no medical? Because, you know, group benefits is this like magical, amazing place in the world of quote unquote insurance where you can get insurance if you're totally uninsurable by yourself. I can walk into a company, have MS, have cancer, have HIV, <laughs> have no teeth. I could walk in to an employer. If that employer hires me and I wait my probation period, guess what? I'm added to the plan with no medical evidence. And I get to claim most of the benefits, probably all. You know, again, everything is based on that one employer's contract, but I can go to the dentist, I can um, you know, claim medicine, I can claim hospital claims. So so because of that magic, you know, non-medical period, insurance companies always get their backs up when someone doesn't jump all over that period. Like they're gonna think, well, okay, so you had the opportunity to join the plan in January, but you only joined the plan in November. Well, why? Why is that? Is it so then their cynical gears start turning? They're thinking, well is it because Your employer made you pay some of the premium. Maybe they wanted you to pay 50% of the premium and you felt like you did not want to pay that 50 bucks or hundred bucks a month sometimes in some cases. And now you just got a cancer diagnosis or now you've got a really, really bad toothache and now you want to join the plan. I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. Or, you know, is it, you know, why, why are there waiting periods? Why don't you just Put employees on the plan as of day one? Well, you really could if you've negotiated it, if it's a key hire. But also the other key is that if they came from a benefit plan previously, or if they had benefits within six months of joining your company. And the reason is because insurance companies are very much aware that business owners do all sorts of things because, you know, God bless entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs, but oftentimes entrepreneurs see themselves as rule breakers and don't feel like they need to follow the rules. So for example, you know, a business owner might have a benefit plan that they fund, they pay into, and they feel entitled to do whatever they want with that plan. And their next door neighbor might be telling them while, you know, they're having a barbecue on the weekend that they just got cancer and it's too bad. They're a contractor. They have been working, um, you know, as a contractor for several years and they have no benefits and they're uninsurable. That employer, if they're not really aware of how that affects their premiums might say, oh, I feel so bad. You know what? Don't worry. Let's put you on the plan. They might do that to their family members that are not really employees. I see that all the time where you might add an uncle, an aunt, a mother, a grandmother, a child, um, a third cousin on the plan when they're not an employee. They're not actively at work. Even their kids. I mean, I know it sounds awful, but insurance companies don't like to see that behavior because that in and of itself is anti-selection. And the core of the matter is insurance companies know and assume They assume that if you're well enough to be working full time for an employer, you're pretty much well enough to join the plan without a medical. I mean, people typically, you know, discrimination in HR and all that discussion aside, typically if people are well enough to show up for a job interview on time, in a suit with the resume, um, answer questions, look you in the eye, shake your hand and walk out of there, like, you're pretty much well enough to work and you're probably okay. So they really understand that with benefit plans, they're gonna get the good, the bad, and the ugly. They're gonna get very, very healthy people, people that have some plans, they're gonna get very sick people that they're required to cover. Um, now, here's the other thing. Insurance companies have mandatory participation requirements because of this. So it's not just about late applicants. It's about looking at your contract and asking, well, what is the participation requirement in my plan? Is it that 100% of all employees need to join life and long-term disability? It's probably the case. It's very rare that you'll see insurance companies allowing less than 100% of eligible active full-time employees in the benefit plan or in the employer join the benefit plan. Health and dental might be a little bit different. They might have 100% 100% or 75% participation, but they think of participation as um, joining if you have no other plan. So if you're opting out because you've shown proof that you have a secondary equivalent plan, like a spousal benefit plan, that's fine. But they're not cool with people opting out just because they feel like not paying the premium. So, you know, if you are a broker listening to this, And your client tells you, well, we've got 30 employees, but 10 on the benefit plan because they didn't want to pay the premium. It's incredibly important to explain that if the insurance company finds out that they are breaking the contract, it is possible. And I've seen it happen where the insurance company rip up the contract, give you back all your premiums and say, you're on the hook. You're the insurance company now. We don't want that risk. And then for the employer to become the insurance company, meaning you've told your employees in writing that they have benefits and they're expecting that if someone passes away that someone's going to get some life insurance money the, the employer becomes the insurance company it's it has happened people do get sued businesses lose an enormous amount of money brokers might lose a lot of money their EO insurance might refuse to pay you might lose your license it's incredibly you know devastating to break the contract like that now a lot of brokers i meet say well as long as you don't tell the insurance company they don't find out who cares You really can't operate and build a career on that basis because your reputation will absolutely follow you. If you are known to behave in a certain way, insurance companies will just simply not work with you. People move from insurance company to insurance company. It's like a little racket almost, like that you will be shut out of the market if you are known to allow anti selection to take place in the market. So if you're a broker and your client says, I've got 30 employees, 10 people on the plan and you kindly explain to them why that's not okay, why they must add all employees on the plan or give no plan altogether. And if your client refuses to do that, then you should not be working with that client. I know it's very difficult to say no to business, but it's important to run for the hills. Um, A broker that I I know, uh, Dave Patriarch, who runs Mainstay Insurance here in Ontario, actually says like he has fired clients because they have not met the participation requirements and they refuse to require their employees to meet that requirement. So that's really, really key. I think it's very important that you understand the full risks to you as the broker or you as the client if you're listening to this. Now, of course, if you've got a client and they've got a pure health spending account benefit plan, the risk of anti-selection is nil because it's not insurance. But the reason why it, you know, anti-selection is so important is just as a concept, you know, forgetting, forget medicals, forget, um, you know, insurance and anti-selection. As the employer, it's the right thing to do. I mean, you can get into a lot of trouble if you have a shred of doubt as to your, the way you discriminate against your employees. In Ontario, it's absolutely, you know, within an employee's rights to bring a A case to the Human Rights Tribunal and say their human rights were, you know, tarnished or, uh, you know, discriminated against because they were not allowed to join the benefit plan. And they feel like it's because of one of the items in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, like creed, color, sex, religion, etc. And so as an employer, you know, that kind of claim can absolutely cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend. But the reputational damage can also severely hurt your business. Um, I remember there's one employer I know here downtown on Queen Street, where I live. And, you know, they were all over the newspaper because there was an issue with their, their cancer claim. And, you know, long story short, the employer just basically didn't follow the rules and they paid heavily. They paid the price financially and they paid the price from a reputation perspective. So it really is best practice from an HR perspective. If you're going to be rolling out a benefit plan, you have to be prepared to roll it out to the your workforce in general. I mean, of course, it's different. If you have different categories of people and you can prove that's not discriminatory, that's a different story. Like you might have part-time employees that you hire from a temp agency and that's different from a full-time employee. That is legitimate. It's legitimate to say, I want to give benefits to one class of people that are actually my employees versus another class that are technically not my employees. It is legitimate to say executives and business owners get a different class of benefits and better benefits than maybe first year entry employees. That sort of thing is fine and normal. That's a normal, non-discriminatory act of total compensation. But you know, generally, you don't want to be known because there are employers that will tell us Um, ask me in the insurance industry and they'll say well I didn't add him to the plan because I didn't I wanted to see how well he was doing in his performance before I paid for his benefits unfortunately it doesn't work that way that's what the probation period is for that first three months if you're not okay with their performance you know let them go or give them an opportunity to improve, even extend the probation period, extend the waiting period. And you know, in your insurance policy, the employer is allowed to say, I want my waiting period to be six months or a year, and you could absolutely implement that. So, you know, all of this to say, I know it's frustrating, I know it can be difficult, but it's very important that as a broker, you defend against anti-selection, you defend against adverse selection behavior. If not for all these reasons that I've listed, think about it for your own self-preservation. If you look at our block of renewals, we have hundreds of companies that renew every year, and I can divide them into two camps. I can see one camp where uh, employees pay none of the premiums at all, and then another camp where employees pay 50% of the premiums. And who do you think has worse renewals? Like, higher percentage increases on their premiums at renewal it's not the first category it's the second category it's because of that psychological normal natural human behavior to say if i'm paying half of these premiums i better make sure i'm getting some value out of it so if you're going to go ahead and charge me a hundred dollars a month well for the average canadian that's a ton of money to charge um and then not expect there to be some sort of other behavior so if i'm someone earning an average salary, making, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a year, and I'm paying $100 a month, I'm going to make sure that I'm claiming at least $100 a month. And so if you've listened to the episode about how health and dental benefits are not insurance, um, really a cost plus method of doing business, outsourcing expense account, um, you'll know that that becomes difficult because your claims are pushing up your premiums. So as a broker, it is obviously more difficult for you to retain your client and sell a double digit renewal, meaning like, you know, if your premiums are going up by 25, 30%. But if you dig deeper, when I used to be a service rep and I go out to the field, the companies where anti-selection was present absolutely was reflected in their premiums and was reflected in that company's desire to shop the market and leave. And although, you know, insurance companies don't like that behavior. Every year, there's always an insurer who is willing to quote and pick up that risk. Why? Because someone at the top might have said, we need to grow by X dollars this year. Do whatever it takes to grow. Just get the premiums on the books. We'll deal with the risk later. So that's anti-selection, adverse selection in a nutshell. If you have any questions, please do feel free to reach out to us. Um, Our social handles are at Beneplan, at Beneplan.ca on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Uh, Facebook and Twitter. I'm Yaffa Sakaja. Thank you for listening.